Welcome to Beyond Back to Normal, a podcast sharing some of the findings of a qualitative study of the impact of the coronavirus pandemic of 2020 on business culture. I'm Jonathan Cook, the researcher who conducted interviews with the people whose voices you hear in these episodes. So far, this podcast has focused on the erosion of normality under COVID-19. The first episode considered the consequences of the failure of the data infrastructure of business to provide us with adequate information about what's going on during the pandemic. The second episode took us deeper down to reveal the way that the strain of the crisis has warped the basic structures of space and time as they are experienced by people in business. Viewed from the perspective of conventional business culture, this disorientation seems to be leading us away from any chance of success. A less linear view, however, recognizes the potential embedded in the coronavirus disruption. Disorientation, although it thwarts our efforts at efficient navigation, creates the opportunity for fundamental transformations in the culture of business in which new kinds of companies emerge, even as others crumble. Separation and disorientation, anthropologists have taught us, are often used to set the stage for rituals of transformation. But what is a ritual? To move toward an answer to that question, let's consider the experience of Pernille Holm Rasmussen, a techno-anthropologist in Denmark, as she sought an escape from the stress of urban confinement in the early weeks of the pandemic's arrival in Europe. Pernil maintained social distancing while on a long-distance hike around the perimeter of an island. It was 70 kilometers in three days and it was my, with my partner. And it was down south where we come from. So I went from my parents' home, my childhood home, and then just like um, we went around the island. So it's very small. It's uh, down the most southern island of, uh, of Denmark. Um, yeah, so we slept in shelters and in our tent and we cooked on the fire. And it was nice because the density of people is, is so low. So it's, uh, it's good to be somewhere where you're not reminded of it. It's very different from where I'm located right now in the heart of Copenhagen. I think for me, nature is uh, absolute freedom. It allows me to get out of my everyday life. So on an everyday basis, I do go out a lot. Um, even in Copenhagen, uh, I, I always, I, like I just went for a one hour walk. But the thing with nature uh, in Copenhagen, a park, it's not even enough anymore because you're confronted with coronavirus everywhere because you have to keep distance and you have to, it's always on, on my mind that, uh, and then it doesn't feel like freedom anymore <laughs> in the same way. So going on a hike like that, it takes me completely out of my everyday life. And I completely forget that there is this coronavirus and 
we have to stay inside and because here social distancing is not a thing you don't have to do that in nature when you're just you and your partner living under the same roof you don't have that thing and so for me it just allows me to not think at all about anything and this is what nature does for me and then of course something like a hike puts because you can still think while being in nature so i think at some point when you walk enough you think out stuff but when you have like physical pain you stop thinking because you're only thinking about survival right and i think hiking for me going on trips like these this is important because it takes me back to the fundamentals of being human cooking food uh survival where do we sleep tonight uh can i i need to stay warm so i need to build a fire how do i build a fire i need to get wood i need to build the wood in a way that wind doesn't blow everything up you know if i don't have wood i'll freeze so it's complete it's changing my priority of what matters to me it's not even about going to a cafe or a bar anymore so that i think is is what it's doing to me yeah and i think what i found out is that i <laughs> when i'm on a hike like that i don't check the news um i so i'm not on social media at all i'm not on facebook i'm on linkedin but i chose one and a half years ago to delete my facebook and instagram so i'm not confronted with that but actually what i found out when when covid started is that i got my fix through news so i went to all the news sites even though they said the same thing i would still check out every every news channel to see if i missed something and and it became like an obsession in the beginning of all of this i think i spent 4 hours a day just reading news it became facebook for me as <laughs> so i was like what what is going on and and that trip pulled me back and out of it because i didn't know what was going on for 5 days and then when i came back i realized okay i actually didn't miss much you know because i can just read this one article and then i know the the changes the immersion in nature that pernil achieved on her hike was a dramatic contrast from the issues of digitally automated transportation that she has studied in her work as a techno-anthropologist. I think a lot of people studying anthropology and coming from uh, this background kind of knows what it means to be a techno-anthropologist because a lot of people have argued that all anthropology is techno-anthropology because we study people and technology, right? And we study the use of artifacts. But uh, the particular education in techno-anthropology is focusing on the study of innovation in companies in tech companies for example but then they're also uh kind of pushing us into going into ai development for example so i worked on on a project this was the eu project right uh developing uh software of how um <laughs> autonomous vehicles should communicate with pedestrians and our role was to actually help uh build behavioral models for the data scientists by studying how people interact in traffic so we're working in this intersection the considerations of automated movement controlled by artificial intelligence that perneal deals with are qualitatively different from the questions of movement that she confronted on her hike autonomous vehicles are pre-programmed 
after all, moving without any conscious experience of the meaning of their own movement. Pernille's hike was a ritual of movement, a pilgrimage in which her actions became behavioral metaphors for her struggle with coronavirus, enabling her to at once escape and confront the dramatic changes to everyday life under COVID-19. The hike took the isolation and deprivation of coronavirus quarantine to another level, but this time in a form that was not imposed upon Pernille. She took control of a chaotic situation by choosing the sacrifices of the hike. Her 70-kilometer hike was an experience of the basics of survival, as Pernille recounts the trip. It's clear that the threats to her survival during the hike are different from the ones that threaten us all during the COVID-19 pandemic. Whereas the dangers of the coronavirus are invisible to us and present us with no simple way to struggle against them, the threats she faces on the hiking trail are easy to perceive and address. Hunger, cold, and the need for shelter. Pernille's long walk also relieved her of the frustration and confusion of her fruitless search through the news, looking for something that's impossible to pin down, clear perspective on this crisis. The only news she needed while she was on the trail was what she could see right in front of her face, the news of the terrain and the weather around her, through her walk, Pernille was able to symbolically shrink the world down to a scale that made tangible sense, in contrast to the senselessness of the news. Of course, Pernille didn't begin the hike with a fully thought-out plan to enact a ritual of pilgrimage into nature. Although she chose a trail that had already been laid down for her to follow, there was no pre-established framework of cultural meaning for the walk in terms of the needs of a person confronting a global pandemic. Nonetheless, Pernille improvised a ritual experience rich with structure and meaning. Through her description of her hike, Pernille shows us much of what makes a ritual a ritual. First of all, Ritual is symbolic as a form of behavior. Pernille consciously worked through issues of nature and civilization, isolation and survival, but not through some kind of rational contemplation of her situation. Pernille's hike was all about action. Her struggles, though they were conceptual, were thoroughly embodied. She didn't just sit at a table with her chin in her hand. She walked through the landscape of her issues until she was tired and sore. Ritual can communicate meaning, but it's something people do, not just something that they say. Secondly, ritual deals with incompatible and uncomfortable problems. We turn to ritual in moments of crisis, 
when our needs no longer match our place in the world. It may be that the world has changed as we have attempted to remain the same, or that our own needs have shifted, so that the social context in which we once felt comfortable no longer feels like home. It's important to note that, interpreted as a pilgrimage, Perniel's hike doesn't offer a complete response to the global crisis provoked by COVID-19. If her walking journey was a rite of passage, it wasn't one that brought her to a new identity. Instead, it took her right back to her coronavirus captivity in Copenhagen, although perhaps with a new perspective on the situation. This incomplete nature of Perniel's COVID-19 pilgrimage defies conventional wisdom about the ritual process. We're prone to thinking of rituals as firm traditions rather than as fluid inventions, in large part because such an impression suits the individuals and organizations that have been granted the authority to control social rituals. If people believe in the existence of sacred, authentic, and unchangeable rituals, then the systems of power that those rituals support cannot be challenged. If, on the other hand, we choose to look at rituals as acts of improvisation, we are apt to perceive systems of power as arbitrary and capable of reform. We can see that Perniel's ritual journey worked for her, even though it was incomplete. This ritual success, in the absence of planning and tradition, suggests that rituals don't need to be fully designed in order to function. Instead of thinking of ritual as a single kind of thing that is either present or absent, we can look at rituals as a sort of compound experience that can be constructed from several different elements, all of which contribute to the impact of a ritual experience. Although a ritual can be culturally functional to some extent, even if just one or two of those elements are present. Above all else, Perniel's pilgrimage was an opportunity for the clarification of purpose and meaning. On her hike, Perniel pursued that meaning by separating herself from the larger social reality of the pandemic. However, she also recognizes some characteristics of a ritual experience within the new social rules that accompany the COVID-19 crisis. We're so occupied with our own lives, our own achievements, our own goals. Uh, we're stressed and we need to take care of, I don't have children, but children, jobs, husband, everything, you know, everything is so like on a roll that you don't notice on an everyday basis to stop and take a breath and reconsider what it is you're doing. And I think this, when you have a crisis like that, it uh, abrupts everything. It stops what you're doing and you have to suddenly become very inventive with new ways of life. I think this is something that's forcing us into thinking of other ways of doing things in ways that we did not have mental space for in our everyday life. I think it's like, why would I think about that? Because I'm fine where I am, we're comfortable, right? And 
it's not comfortable the situation we're in, but so it's forcing us to think of ways how we can get out of that. They think, like, what do I do? And suddenly, a lot of people are realizing, oh, maybe it's not like binge watching everything on Netflix. Maybe it's getting outside or whatever works, right? So yeah, I think it flips everything upside down. And I, I don't know, I, at least what I have read and what I think is that every time we do have a crisis, innovation happens, right? Something new comes out of it because we're realizing that we, need, we needed a change. Pernille describes the kind of pervasive discomfort in an upside down alternative reality that other research participants have discussed in the first two episodes of this podcast. Antonella Fabri, a cultural analyst and brand strategist with Kaleidoscopio Ethnographic Research in New York City, refers to this experience as like the middle part of a ritual of initiation. There is always hope, oh, you know, it's going to go away. But at the same time, things change and control over situations, relations, slips away. And that's why I've been reading people are making more bread or people, uh, many people I talk to, my friends, are reorganizing their closets, their houses, their cleaning. That's a sense of safety and gives you roots and control. And uh, you have to think, oh, you know, I'm living in a parenthesis time or, you know, let's face it, this can go on a long time. What am I going to do? I'm Italian, so I talk to my cousins, I talk to my friends, and everything is on hold. Their mothers in the old people's home, their business, their uh, vacation, their education of their children having to go to college, and now I've come back. I, I see that with my daughter as well. Everything is on hold. It's like a suspension. It's a, the middle part of the initiation period. And where are we going to? That's a big unknown. And that's why I think the sense of create a safety net for ourselves in terms of the way we shop, the way we clean, the way we reorganize the closet, what we eat. And um, I think we don't really know what's happening, what's going to happen, so that there is no other way to call this. The big unknown that Antonella talks about is an experience that's common to most of the research participants. Of course, the details of their individual encounters with the unknown differ according to their specific circumstances. What unites us in business is the creation of a cultural threshold in which our attachment to once solid professional and personal identities begin to soften under the gravity of the coronavirus crisis. Ben Depke, principal at the IX company, introduces another anthropological term to the discussion of the ritual aspects of the COVID-19 experience. He describes it as a liminal moment. 
those liminal moments are primarily where we discover what is critical. Um, even if it's hard to recognize it at that moment, um, <clears throat> those liminal moments, those limbo moments um, are where we can see that uh, we are no longer what we were and we are not yet what we will be. Um, here we are. And now what is possible? In fact, what is necessary? Um, so I think focusing on the conversation on identity and purpose um, and, you know, a I probably wouldn't use this vernacular uh, with the client, but I, I think something to say, what is our spiritual trajectory? Um, I think this is a good time for that to sort of check in, um, you know, as people have checked out of the daily grind and the rigmarole of a lot of those idle conversations that allowed them to keep their heads in the sand. Um, they've checked out of that. So I think now's a good time to check in with some of those bigger questions. The word liminal is an architectural metaphor derived from the Latin word limen, which referred to the threshold of a doorway, a space that is between spaces, neither in one room nor in another, but a connection between the two. In the early 20th century, Arnold van Gennep proposed that the liminal space of a figurative doorway is not just an opening to pass through in ritual, but a space in its own terms, with its own characteristics. Decades later, anthropologist Victor Turner developed and popularized the concept of liminality, describing it as a special kind of reality in which the normal structure of social relations is suspended, allowing identities to become fluid on the way to re-solidifying in the form of new social roles. Listen again to the first two episodes of this podcast and you'll hear participants in this research describe their perception of reality during COVID-19 as becoming fluid or even liquefying. What once was solid is now able to flow. Ben Tepke explains that it's not just individuals whose identities become fluid upon entry into a liminal zone. Social organizations enter into the flow as well. In fact, it's through this phenomenon that rituals work to form and strengthen communities. I think that it's something that figures prominently in all this, right? As you, um, you allow people to, to go out and um, be together in public and there is this sort of social intimacy and people are always with other people. Um, I think there becomes, and we've seen it, this insane drive toward individualism. Right? How do I stand out from the crowd? And now, as people are forced into reclusion, 
uh, now you see people saying, well, how do I find a crowd? Where, where do I get my belonging and how do I get my connectedness? The individual is a node in a network. And without that togetherness, the node is isolated and falters and, well, dies. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what the speed is depending on the degree of isolation, but you see so much happening around <clears throat> anxiety and depression and suicide rates. Um, and, you know, there's a lot out there is indicating we've been extremely unwell for the last decade or so. Like the conditions are worsening for us psychologically, spiritually. And I think that togetherness is a great way to hold us together as individuals. We lose track of who we are. We lose track of what we're capable of. We lose track of our right to exist. Um, and everything sort of becomes numb and mechanistic. So I do hope that in a couple months as people charge out into the daylight or nightlife, as the case may be, that we bring with us this lens of, holy hell, um, I really needed you. And it's so great to be together because I was losing myself. If we can uh, propagate the conversation around why it's important for us to be together, then perhaps uh, even for people like me who are fairly introverted, this, um, this being together um, takes on a whole new power. I think collectively it's a stressful time. And I think our best, our best way forward is together. The community building power of ritual should grab the attention of businesses because a business is itself a form of community. It's a group of people who unite around an idea expressed in the form of an assemblage of products and services. Abstract economic theories have proposed that marketplace behavior is motivated by rational calculations, taking into account factors such as price and convenience. Of course, rational factors do matter, but anyone who has been in business for a while has noticed that consumers don't make simple calculations of value, and not just because of the consistent patterns of miscalculation discussed by behavioral economists. People in business don't make most professional decisions with financial benefit at the top of their minds either. Human beings are not just computers with legs. We feel our way through life as much as we think our way forward. One of the most basic emotions is the need to belong. We are biologically driven to seek the company of other people, and we don't settle for social connections with just anybody. We feel compelled to form connections with others who share a sense of common history and common purpose. Even the motivations of values and emotion aren't enough on their own to form bonds of trust. Community comes from shared experiences. 
rituals exist to make those shared experiences systematic, with certain rituals associated with particular forms of identity. The problems that we face with COVID-19 are that there's no pre-established form of identity for a person under seclusion during a prolonged global quarantine. And that means that we lack a ritual tailor-made to fit the crisis in which we find ourselves. Sometimes we can compensate for that. That proved to be the case early in the pandemic with the countrymen of Alberto Guglielmoni, head of strategic business development and innovation at the Story Group. I'm at home, obviously, as everybody here in Italy. Uh, and this is, uh, let's say, from um, two, three weeks, actually. Um, I'm pretty lucky to live uh, just outside Milan, which is one of the headquarters of, uh, of the uh, coronavirus problem here in Italy. Uh, but, and so being just outside the city, I have a, li a little bit more, let's say, countryside and uh, uh, air feeling. So it, it's a bit better. I'm a consultant and uh, I'm, I'm actually working on different projects. Some of them requires uh, office uh, work. Some others I can handle it by working from home. I see that there is a strong, uh, let's say, at least here in Italy, um, movement of uh, um, uniting people. In fact, we have this sort of ritual, which is at six o'clock in the afternoon, going outside from the, from the balcony and with uh, the Italian flag singing, um, uh, singing Italian songs and uh, the national hymn and so, which is absolutely something absolutely unusual before, um, but not only because of the fact that people is working, but because of the uh, absolutely not patriotic uh, um, spirit, uh, because of course in the daily life uh, patriotic spirit is something which is not um uh, which is not felt uh, as strong as now so it's a sense of uh, being together on the same boat being together on the facing the same problem yeah and the contradiction is exactly what you what you said being together without being close together. It's, um, it seems a contradiction, but it's uh, becoming stronger um, against this kind of situation. And so the visual aspect, I think, is important, which is, by the way, the same as you do it uh, on the balcony. So you see other people. You see that they are alive. And you see that they are good you see um, that they are more or less the same like every day uh, simply they are stuck at home because uh, they are not allowed to go outside and so i think the visual aspect is important when they were forced to retreat 
into their homes, Italians responded to their situation with a new ritual that became iconic of the crisis. Every evening they would open their windows and sing with each other across the distance, expressing their desire to remain connected. As Alberto explains, the national anthem of Italy had been disregarded, but became relevant as a symbol of shared purpose when Italians faced an outbreak unparalleled at that time anywhere outside of China. Their solidarity in song provided a perfect example of the way in which rituals can support the maintenance of community in challenging times. The rituals of solidarity during COVID-19 are not always so emotionally intense. Sometimes they express a more low-key level of continuity. In the first episode of this podcast, Julie Lauzon talked about the weekly coffee ritual she has established with co-workers who sit and sip while chatting with each other on a Zoom line. Coffee has served as a ritual medium for centuries. In Ethiopia, the original home of coffee, women controlled the social stage for as long as three hours at a time during the Buna ritual of serving coffee. During the Enlightenment, coffee houses provided the location for rituals of radical freedom of expression. In the home of John Caswell, CEO of Group Partners, coffee continues as a symbolic recommitment to the ideal of perfection in imperfect times in the form of the perfect mocha, or as John pronounces it, mocha. We have this ritual in the afternoon of having a mocha, which I make as a ritual. And it literally is a 10-minute exercise to make the perfect mocha. Uh, do you know, it's, it's rather like making the perfect coffee. There's so many variables. The, the temperature, the pressure, the beans, the grinding, the milk. The milk. Yeah, particularly the milk. We use an oat milk. So it's kind of... And then you've got to put the right amount of chocolate with the right amount of coffee and the right amount of water, and not water, the right amount of milk. The stakes of John's ritual of afternoon mocha in his London home are not as high as they have been in northern Italy. The experience of the coronavirus pandemic has been more severe in some places, less in others. Almost everyone in business, however, has been struggling in some way to keep up their dedication as their physical attachment to the signs of normal working life, fade. Does John have a true biological need for the caffeine and sugar boost to his system every afternoon? Probably not. The stimulants offer more of a placebo effect than a chemical support. The placebo effect is real, though. It's an expression of the power of ritual giving John the chance to make a gesture toward remaining at work when he probably would rather take a nap. Rituals can be small or global in scale, 
What remains the same, regardless of size, is the way that rituals enable people and organizations to transform or maintain their identities through symbolic behavior. Rituals open with the elements of separation and disorientation. They can then be strengthened through performances of conspicuous rule-breaking and the imposition of taboos. At the height of the liminal experience, participants engage in creative acts of symbolic play, manipulating the fundamental memes of their culture to create new combinations of meaning suited to their needs. In complete rituals, participants are guided in the meaning of those symbols by elders or interpretive experts before they are presented with tests of worthiness. The most culturally powerful rituals are complete only with acts of reorientation that assist participants in the adoption of their new social roles. But then, not every ritual requires the maximum cultural impact. Sometimes, all that we need is ten minutes of separation and a little symbolic play with a mug of mocha. Different moments of crisis call for different levels of commitment. As people in business deal with the disorientation provoked by COVID-19, they can improvise small rituals for their individual professional maintenance. But at a larger scale, the worldwide experiences of separation and disorientation present us with the opportunity to craft a new level of ritual practice that includes billions of people at once. The idea that something of this sort has begun is already on people's minds. Philip Vostel of the Czech Academy of Sciences is uneasy at the prospect, wondering whether the transformation at hand will lead to redemption or to a darker tomorrow. I hope that it's not a rite of passage because then it would mean that we are in the midst of something and that at the end of it, it will either be sort of redemption or the otherwise. <laughs> That's what rites of passages are often kind of doing, I'm afraid. Well, it's very Kafka-esque sort of thing uh, at the same time, because we are in the Czech Republic. So even though Kafka was a German Jew living in Prague, well, he's still like connected to Prague. Ritual experiences are typically accompanied by anxiety, and we have reason to be afraid of rites of passage, as they require the sacrifice of what we have been for the sake of what we are to become. There is often a resistance to the idea of using rituals in commercial culture, not just because we are predisposed to hope that we can gain without sacrifice, but because the culture of business was established in the aftermath of the anti-ritual revolutions of the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment. Alastair Somerville explains that this cultural legacy 
makes ritual a tricksy idea. You you are looking at a sort of um, enlightenment sense of um, of experience um, in that. Yes, they they were looking. You know, they were well aware of religious or, um, but but inherent in sort of post enlightenment um, in terms of post enlightenment occurring the idea of seeking that kind of experience was difficult for people who were yeah in a society which didn't really allow for it and also for a church you know anglican church which also didn't really allow for it either um, they had purged purged ideas of that sort of thing i mean it's it's, it's always it, you know it's 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 very much a it's a tricksy point for um West, well, no, North American and, I mean, well, American and British society have a really very bad relationship with with these concepts of awe and transcendence because it's been trampled down and sort of, you know, viewed as something that doesn't or shouldn't exist, even though it, by necessity, must exist um, for humanity, um, or for human beings anyway. As Alastair says, awe and transcendence have been trampled in the post-enlightenment world. It's not just an abstract philosophical point, however, to be argued about by academics. The post-enlightenment world is the world of the culture of business. The dismissal of the transcendence of the liminal moment and of the ritual process that opens the door to it is a consequence of the cultural choice to interpret all of reality as something made up of interchangeable, identical parts. The rejection of ritual time and space made it possible for trains to run on time, for international corporations to develop, for the iPhone to be invented. The way that people in business are accustomed to thinking about reality is incompatible with the ritual model of reality, in which periods of stable time and space are punctuated by liminal spheres in which the dimensions of reality are profoundly distorted. Rashmir Balasubramaniam expresses this discomfort. I'm cognizant that I am a person that has never liked rituals <laughs> i mean i'm sure i have rituals in my life that i wouldn't call a ritual but you know minimal things i but i've always shied away from the religious certainly the religious ones but i i fully accept um that we we are missing rituals in sort of you know modern western secular society and and i would argue that some of the rituals that exist in parts of the world where there's still strong ritual are maybe no longer fit for the, for the purpose. Rashmir makes an important point when she communicates her reluctance to embrace a ritual mindset that has been associated with pre-industrial ideologies. The ritual systems of the past were often used to control people, to restrict them to limited social roles, and to impose codes of behavior that would be regarded as cruel in our own time. Social progress has indeed been made through conventional business culture, 
in the rejection of traditional modes of ritual. Clearly, we cannot go back to the way things were before the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Nonetheless, there is something confining about the industrial mindset that has continued to dominate business for generations and has been amplified by the onset of digital technology. Work without the transformative power of ritual has created its own set of limitations on human potential. Perhaps the opportunity presented by the COVID-19 crisis is to integrate ritual into the culture of business, but in a new way that enhances flexibility in social roles rather than hampering it. Rashmir hints at this possibility. It's kind of holding the liminal state you know, in, it for, it, in a way that it makes it easier for people to stay in it for, for a little longer, for long enough for something to begin to shift. I guess it's back to that idea of taking a step back and maybe we have to be in the liminal long enough to be able to see and know something different. So maybe there is a way to find safety in the liminal that allows us to move beyond our current ways of thinking. I need to learn how to, how to let go and be again in the liminal. How can we accomplish this new synthesis of ritualism and industrialism? How can we open up the potential of liminality without retreating back into archaic social restrictions? A possibility presents itself if we return to the experience related by Pernille Holm Rasmussen at the beginning of this episode. The difference between the pilgrimage of her hike and the traditional pilgrimages of medieval times is that her journey was improvised, unregulated by any central authority. Perhaps the way to implement rituals of business is to allow for the element of play, creating times and spaces when the liminal threshold can be opened to support creative quests for vision, but keeping the orderly progress of business in other contexts, respecting both the need for precision and the need for ambiguity for a business culture that can be both solid and liquid, a particle and a wave, in a dynamic balance that remains firm, yet flexible. In next week's episode, we will follow Pernille's path of play, exploring the role of improvisation in the pursuit of symbolic recombination. Thank you for listening to this third episode of Beyond Back to Normal. Quite soon, you'll be able to find a transcript of it on the websites beyondbacktonormal.com and businessinthetimeofcoronavirus.com. The music that you're hearing now is a song called Corona Norco from the 2010 album To the Dust from Man You Came and to man you shall return by the instrumental duo Charles Atlas. Chin up.
stay well.